Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Welcome back to Keep It. We're in our third week of this seriality where the two co-hosts you're familiar with simply cannot be found. No idea where they are at this point. It's like Nelson Rockefeller's kid, just lost in the bush of Australia somewhere. And I'm here again this week with our good friend Guy Branham. Welcome back. Good to be here. Good to be back. This is the third week in your uh, uh, sojourn here. Which trilogy would you compare your Keep It stint to? Oh, uh, I, it's very early in the morning. I have been consistently bad at Keep It because of it, and uh, I don't have a solid answer. I'm going to say the Star Wars sequels. A disappointment to all. Like <laughs> That's not true at all. All I get are comments being like, Guy is remarkably articulate. People with tears in their eyes talking about you. I'm going to go with Back to the Future because I believe you have traveled to the 1880s to meet Mary Steenburgen. No, no, no. I have to. Sh- uh, it's Peter Morgan's movies about Tony Blair. <laughs> I am <laughs> the Peter Morgan's movies about Tony Blair of this podcast. <laughs> okay. It's all so clear now. And our other guest today, man, it's like emotional to introduce this person. She's... Uh, Mike's, uh, mine and Guy's great pal. Most importantly, she is halfway to EGOT, so we're going to investigate that in a second. But uh, you know her and love everything she does. She's the Oscar winner and now Tony winner, Diablo Cody. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I am i can't believe you dropped a Mary Steen version before 830. Right. <laughs> um, that's, I, I'm, I, I feel like I'm... I'm lubed up now. Okay. <laughs> You're right in it. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. We can talk about any parenthood cast member of your choosing right now. I'm on a Martha Plimpton kick at the moment, actually. So if we want to indulge this, we can. I mean, I'm a weast, How man. About Ed? A weast. <laughs> Ed Begley Jr. Uh. from the original TV series. Oh, yeah. No, wait. Ed Begley Jr., do you remember when we would just give him every movie? Like, he was the star of She-Devil. I miss those times, kind of. <laughs> Was it like a sex appeal we thought he had? It's very confusing. Lewis, do you really consider Ed Begley Jr. to be the star of She-Devil? <laughs> there, uh, do, you think he was the, do you think he was the main attraction there? I mean, t- the mole got top billing, right? <laughs> Matt, what a weird performance from Roseanne. You thought she would have been dynamite in there, and she felt accidentally deadpan. Anyway, yeah. we can talk about She-Devil some other time. But um, we need to – here's my question about you in regards to EGOT. Brooke, and I may accidentally call you Brooke several times throughout this. Her name's Brooke, not Diablo. We all understand that. How do you feel about the fact that you've gotten the two hardest ones first? Do you feel like you're going to make easy work of the last two? No, because I, I, hard is relative. Like, I, I, the the Grammy is going to be, like, I say going to be as if it's inevitable. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the Grammy that I will win is surely going to be the toughest part of the equation. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I... And also, like, the Tony was, like, a wild, like, plague situation where only, like, three or four musicals were even able to open. So, yeah, I'm diminishing my own accomplishment here. But, like, I kind of – I feel like I kind of sneaked in on that one. 
because of the pandemic. Well, let me just say something about the Grammy. First of all, pick up some Dickens or Poe and read it on tape and hit record, and then you win a Grammy. <laughs> so stop pretending like that's super difficult. Okay, I I just want to point out, like, there is a Grammy for liner notes. Like, and <laughs> mm. I, I, I just feel like you could kill that in a thousand different ways, whether it was like something being reissued or something of your own. Like, I would love to see Diablo Cody's liner notes. Guy, I actually did not know this. And now I'm like so excited for like the Tiny Tim reissue or whatever, you know. <laughs> Tiny Tim. Oh, my God. I mean, right? You're the, you are the Miss Vicky of current pop culture, <laughs> I think. We're hitting all the not dated at all references today. I was literally going to say that is a Carson adjacent reference and I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Let's talk about this episode for a second. So uh, Scream 5 came out and or as Scream as it wants to be known, which is upsetting. And while we'll touch on that, we want to talk specifically about what it takes to be a horror protagonist we actually care about, what it takes to be a final girl we care about. Uh, uh, Brooke here has written a, a horror movie of note. Uh, you might remember Jennifer's body. Guy, do you have a favorite Diablo Cody credit in her history? I mean, I've always been a big fan of, of Jennifer's body. Like, I really feel like everything, horror movies were not for me. And then I saw Scream and I was like, they're for me. And then I saw Jennifer's body and I was like, this is more like, this is going deeper into that world of exploring like what gender is in this world. But I mean, it's got to be young adults. Like, you know. Oh, thank you. You just like hadn't seen a character like that before. And it's like the number of like 20 something girls I talked to for whom that just like changed the way they saw the world thrills me. I mean, I don't know what to say. It's like, it, it's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know I was going to get uh, sh- showered with laurels on Keep It. It's so nice. Do you find that gay men now mostly come up to you about either Jennifer's body or young adult? Because truly among my gay male friends, I feel like young adult is like become sort of your key thing for them. Yeah, I mean, that definitely it it does. It does come up a lot. And I have to say that, you know, Jennifer's body was not very well received at all when it came out. I mean, it was a bomb. And but the people who were approaching me even then, to talk about the movie when it was wildly unpopular, we're all young gay men. Yeah. So, you, you know, that was, uh, that was, that's, yeah, it's an honor. You'll notice that we can't let anything go. So that's not going to stop anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Good. I'm glad. Um, Keep, stay with it like a chew toy. <laughs> Furthermore, uh, our guest today is truly one of my all time favorite celebrities. She is a, a television legend. Uh, now a cooking TV Emmy winner and a uh, noted authoress, it is Valerie Bertinelli, who is just like one of those ray of sunshine people who ever lived. And I can't wait for her to come here and probably also talk to us about Betty White, her co-star on yeah. Hot in Cleveland. So we'll get into that. And furthermore, we're going to talk about our favorite celebrity couples since one of the great ones just broke up. That was Jason Momoa and Lisa Bonet. Uh, we're all heartbroken over that, but we will revisit our favorite chaotic and lovely couples of all time. We can go back to ancient times and guy, you can bring up like Nero and Agrippina and all those people (laughs) if you'd like to. But in the meantime, we'll be right back. (laughs) 
After Jason Momoa and Lisa Bonet's announced split, we began to wonder why people cared. What makes some couples ripe for tabloid fodder and others boring? Why do we not believe some couples are together at all? Why do we care who strangers date? And I'm just going to offer this. I love when a perfectly square celebrity ends up with somebody you don't expect at all. And mm-hmm. it just feels like things are lightly out of control in a fun way. And the, the example that comes to mind immediately for me is, and this is not my favorite celebrity couple ever, but I think a fun one. When Sarah Jessica Parker dated Robert Downey Jr., I was like, just even the pictures of it brings me back to that feeling of chaos of, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker is like a spreadsheet keeping on the rails person. And she's dating this <laughs> utter wild card, you know, like Sean Penn and Madonna or something like that. Um, Guy, Brooke, please enlighten me. Who are your favorite couples and why? Well, just to like go off of that for a moment, there's this way that the 1980s, like, created this world that where like every opening was a play place for these like 20 something celebrities and they were just in each other's faces so much that they just all ended up dating each other regardless of how inappropriate it was on the subject of SJP I love the brief period of time she was with JFK Jr. because it was Mm. just sort of like somebody trying on like in a very Carrie Bradshaw way, trying on a pair of boots that are not for you and (laughs) being like, I can't deal with this. But I mean, like the apex of American culture was 1996, Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt. Like we had a culture we could believe in at that point in time. And (laughs) like, I am like our connection to that is so sad because we keep willing this thing to happen, even though two human beings have moved on and have their own lives. And that's one of the hard thing about these conversations is that it is taking human lives and turning them into iconic figures. And that isn't appropriate, but also we need that. We need something to worship. I agree. And Lewis, I just have to say that I, I love that you were deeply affected by the Sarah Jessica Parker, Robert Downey Jr. relationship, because I think you were probably eight years old. At the time. That's correct. Yes. But and I believe that, you. I believe yeah. that it had an impact on you, even at that stage of your life. And it was a good one. And Guy, I'm glad you brought up Brad Pitt, because Brad Pitt's relationships are my favorite thing in the world, because as, as many online have observed, Brad Pitt takes on the style and flavor like tofu. Brad Pitt absorbs. That's so funny. He absorbs the like the vibe of whoever yeah. he's dating, and you can go through photos of his dating history and see this. And when he was with Jennifer Aniston, no cap, when they got married, he got highlights to match her. They got brother and sister highlights. A hairdresser <laughs> has like confirmed this story, and like I love that for Brad. No, I mean, like Brad Pitt relationships are, I mean, he really tried on specific flavors and I guess became specific flavors. But like, does not his relationship with Juliette Lewis speak to you the most? Yes, it does. And I didn't want to talk about it because it's a little bit contro these days because she was like 16 and he was 27, Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, but like, yes, it's, it's totally intriguing. You know, she's got like problematic cornrows. I mean, there was a lot going on at that time. (laughs) But, I mean, they were a beautiful couple. And Brad was definitely at his most, like, outlaw because he was with her. And he was making just movies we simply don't care about anymore, like California, right? (laughs) With a K. Yes, Yes. right. 
Um, what was he trying? On the subject of couples who come to us from the dark side, um, like Mary-Kate Olsen and Olivier Sarkozy. Right. F- first of all, like, the, you know, two great political empires merging. But just that thing, when when the reports came back from their wedding that, like, there were bowls of cigarettes. Like, yes! it was just this moment of realizing, like, oh, that couple. And you understood why this 20-something, like, this, this 20-something girl and 50-year-old, like, French president's brother somehow made sense once you realized, like, they were just, like, smoking and experiencing ennui about all things. Yeah, I think the Olsons may be the definitive ennui celebrities. I yeah. mean, truly, the inexpressed... I and mean, now we've had the confirmation from Elizabeth Olsen. I, I don't know if you saw recently. She was confronted on the street by paparazzi who said, why, do you, why are you so much nicer than your sisters? And she said, unblinking, you've hounded them their entire lives. Yeah. And it was like, right, now, and this is why they live in a bowl of cigarettes now. You know? <laughs> Wait, has Ashley ever been publicly linked with anybody? Because I feel like I've heard of a few Mary-Kate suitors, but I can't, speci- I can't, I can't offhand think That's of really somebody Ashley has dated, and I'm usually like an encyclopedia of random celebrity couplings. As far as I know, no, though I am going to do a controversial Google, which makes me hate myself. Let's see if see. <laughs> In 2021, who is Ashley Olsen's boyfriend, Louis Eisner? Uh, that sounds like a Disney person. Let's take a look. Uh, yeah, he seems kind of norm. Uh, and she actually seems delighted in the pictures, which is a new brand for her. And I'm yeah. glad she's trying it out. By the way, I was just thinking, so I just said, I like the chaos in couples. But I, there's this flip side where I like people who were seemingly born together, as in they're a complete set. They belong on a shelf together. And what I'm talking about is a Peter Sarsgaard, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Mm -hmm. you know, like the exact same indie cred. Like they, one could not exist without the other almost. This is the same universe as a Rhea Perlman, Danny DeVito, or I think the ultimate in this case, Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner, who I think might be maybe my favorite couple of all time. Cause who knew you could put that much zany and that much, and that much, like they're all elbows in one couple. I would like to speak. I would like to speak to like the opposite of that, which is complimentary energies. Like, I love a Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson because it's like Rita's got her own fucking career. She was great in volunteers, but like she's also just like showing up and supporting at every goddamn award show. And like, is like it's just such a weird kind of work to have to do for your spouse. And uh, I love to watch her do it. I also really love a celebrity couple where you are able to tell the story of they love each other so much it's iconic and are they just beards for each other at the same time. Catherine Hepburn, (laughs) Spencer Tracy. It's like I go back and forth between like what an iconic love that could not be contained and also they were just fucking other people, right? I think that is the case. And also, how many movies did they star in together where the whole point was um, she's a strong woman, but unfortunately, she can't make toast. <laughs> and eventually, she's taught. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about couples that seem like they came off the same shelf or were like made for each other, I mean, I know we were, you know, we're we're mourning the dissolution of of Lisa Bonet and Jason Momoa, but what about Lisa and Lenny? Yeah. Like that yeah. was that was a moment. I remember when they had Zoe because I'm old, and like it was, you know, that was. That was a beautiful 
moment. I mean, it, it really was like the iconic moment for Jews of color in America. It was like, <laughs> when else are we going to get that? Well, you, you're just going to put the entire career of Sammy Davis Jr. away like that. All right. Wow. <laughs> Keeping it controversial here on Keep It. Well, you know who's an interesting couple because of where they met in time and now they're still together? And this goes with the funny couples thing. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Brad Hall. Yeah. Because it's yeah. a remnant from the part of her career that no one talks about when she was on SNL mm -hmm. and he was a Weekend Update anchor. And they're still together. And obviously she is, you know, the the Beyonce of sardonic comic acting and he's, you know, around and an actor, but you just never think about that part of their careers together. And it's just rad to see somehow. It's rad, but I also don't trust the couples who've been together a really long time. It just seems so weird to me, maybe because I'm like a divorce machine, but like, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm always like, oh, I don't know. That seems kind of strange. Really? 30 years. Okay. That's well, that's just me projecting my own weirdness onto onto happy people. Yeah, and I mean that like there is so much sort of like fetishization of like the the longest Hollywood relationships because they are relatively unusual. And I like I think there it is also interesting that like some of those relationships you think of as going on forever, realizing like Betty White uh, and Alan Ludden were together for like a little over 20 years because, you know, they built careers and then they married relatively late. Um, but like after Betty passed, watching watching videos of her and Joan Rivers together were really, really amazing because it was two people sort of processing the loss of their husband who they love very much, but also was like in their professional life in a very significant way. And the rapport that they had was something you kind of wouldn't expect because like after Golden Girls, you have this like sanitized image of Betty White and you forget that like she's also Sue Ann and also she can like sling the jokes that she fucking needs to. Um, yes, Betty White was... I mean, I, I would describe her humor, generally speaking, as sly, but yeah. she could go there. I mean, there was occasionally like a dirty joke here and there. If you watch all the episodes of Password, et cetera. I just want to say about Joan Rivers and Edgar, her late husband, um, and not that. Well, I'm still calling him the late husband, even though Joan Rivers has been dead like 10 years. Anyway, um, the crazy thing about them is Joan Rivers and Melissa Rivers starred in a TV movie about that tragedy playing themselves. That is so unbelievable. I can't think of any other situation in television history that is comparable. There's a DVD of it about 10 feet away from me right now. There's <laughs> also a, a DVD of Wendy Malick playing both Dear Abby and Ann Landers, which I would say <laughs> in a TV movie, which is the other thing that you should compare to it. Louis, you need to come over. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, oh, sorry. You think I haven't seen um, the Epi Letterer story or whatever that Take was? my I, advice. I, the, yeah. <laughs> That was in the 90s, Wendy Malick, uh, Valerie Bertinelli's co-star on Hot in Cleveland, played both Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren in wonderful period attire, from what I remember on, in yes. that movie. And, Guys, oh. make this a triple feature with these old broads starring <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor and Debbie Reynolds, and I'm in. Well, I mean, and like, death. Debbie, Debbie is the template for this. I yes. mean, like, oh, yes. Debbie having yeah. um, like Eddie Fisher stolen by Liz Taylor, like is the thing that told us how to tell these stories. There were times when like it was almost sad how much the Jen Aniston, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie story was just stealing from this thing that happened 40 years before. It was. It was plagiarism for sure. Yeah. 
a Debbie Reynolds hosting a press conference right after Elizabeth Taylor stole her man. She came outside in pigtails with like a baby bottle, just making herself seem as like innocent and like wronged as she possibly could. That is mwah, genius. Also, talk about very sly humor. I mean, over the years, it would get more obvious, but Debbie Reynolds was like not here to be polite with the joke. If you haven't recently seen her uh, impression on Larry King of Meryl Streep's acting, uh, Debbie Reynolds took some notes over the years uh, and was not super nice about it. But man, is it fucking hilarious. Yeah, I can't believe we haven't brought up Elizabeth Taylor yet. Uh, I mean, I think the thing with Elizabeth Taylor is that's the rare case of somebody who's coupled them with Richard Burton was so well encapsulated in certain films, namely Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but a couple others too. If you haven't seen the VIPs, that's a weird movie. Um, but those are two people who seemingly their energies were born to match each other, both in terms of vigor and witheringness and 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 also just the sense of a, of legends descending on each other. Like they were just meant to be that famous, meant to be that big, and they could only be with each other. They could only be understanding of one another's career and journey. That's how I feel about Benifer. Oh, right. Oh, no. Okay, let's get into Benifer for a minute. Benifer, I would say, was like it. It was there was too much nucleus on that atom. It had to explode. Like it was just <laughs> too much at that point in time. But now, do you feel that they've the, the core has cooled? I mean, and they they can function. It, the thing is, is it would make me sad that I don't get to watch a movie about it. I want like the notion of like com- comedies of remarriage or getting back together are the best kinds of romantic comedies. And seeing these two people who have grown enough and matured enough to be able to come back together would thrill me so much. Now, Brooke, does Ben Affleck have a pull on you as a straight woman? Because I always feel like I don't really speak the language of Ben Affleck. He absolutely has has a pull on me as a, as a straight woman, and the things that he does that that some might cause might cause some to deem him less attractive, like the giant phoenix back tattoo. <laughs> For me, it's just it just makes the pull stronger. <laughs> but you, but also, it seems like you're a big fan of Benifer, and why is that? Huge! I literally have a replica of the original pink diamond engagement ring. It's a cubic zirconia, obviously. But I mean, I wore this unironically um, in the early 2000s because I'm I'm like that big of a, a fan of this relationship. Um, I I think what I love about them is the same thing I love about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton is that they aren't afraid to be stars. Like yeah. when they yeah. when they pulled when they pulled up to Venice this year. And they put on a show for the photographers and she's like posing in a gondola and like couture and like he's, you know, opening the door. I mean, they are like not afraid to give us what we want. And I'm so sick of like all the like false humility bullshit with like modern celebrities. Like I want wattage. (laughs) Like um, when she gives us content that is on par with who she is, it is so satisfying because you just want that experience to wash over you. And when you have something like Hustlers, you're like, fucking yes. Like, give her every nomination because I want to see her. I don't want somebody giving me a speech about their process. I don't want somebody (laughs) showing up in something they already had in their closet. I want somebody doing the fucking job. Yes, exactly. 
You know what's interesting about her is, I mean, I remember once upon a time, the only tabloid news story was her and then Puff Daddy. And now that has totally faded from view. Like, I feel like nobody brings them up in context with one another. And it's like a, almost a dead reference. And I wonder why that is. Maybe just because Ben's wattage, as you, as you say, is more um, interesting. And, he, and And he's sort of like comes and goes as a celebrity and you're kind of rooting for him because there's something unsafe there too. Then again, yeah, Puffy was unsafe too. I don't know. It's the same reason we don't talk about Mike Todd, even though he had major charisma. Yeah. Because yeah. Burton came along and that just became the dominant story. On the subject of Mike Todd, I would like to say anyone who is famous for their genital size years after their death, a Mike <laughs> Todd, a Sid Caesar. Milton I'm always, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always in awe. Um, but I had a question about same energy like celebrity couples. Did um, Helena Bonham Carter and like uh, Tim Burton, did Tim Burton change Helena Bonham Carter or did he open up the Helena Bonham Carter that was always there? I, I mean, it did seem like before that she wasn't quite um, a character in a best animated short. There was something that happened <laughs> via Tim Burton that led us to her being a claymation thing. Yeah. Um, that said, I do feel like she was an ooky dresser from the start. So it felt like, I, I, yeah, I think he coaxed something out of her, but it was also already present. But it, it's always lovely when you have two people who are together for a period of time and then separate from each other, but have clearly, like, gained something from each other and, like, been changed in a very the end of wicked kind of way. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, they're a cool couple, but I, I guess I saw that situation as kind of a... a Nicholas Cage, Lisa Marie Presley thing where it was more like, this person is relevant to my interests. Mm. Like, I thought that she just kind of, like, fit into his sort of uh, world. Yeah. But, like, I don't want to diminish her. I mean... Well, no, but the thing is, like, the thing that you're saying about Benefer, about Richard Burton and Liz Taylor, is it is two people legitimately having to deal with two big presences, two big careers in the same location and so frequently that fucks with a guy's head so hard that he can't deal. Like, watching pe watching guys go from dating an icon to dating a very nice girl who's 20 years younger than them is, like, it's always a fascinating operation. Did you know that Elizabeth Taylor and Jeff Goldblum dated? No. What? I was, uh, just, I know. I was just thinking about, is this controversial? I might be done with Jeff Goldblum. I feel like I have seen him do the thing he has done. I recently watched The Big Chill. It's like, wow, we've been doing this for close to 40 years now. All right. <laughs> um, uh, Frank Langella wrote a book uh, that is just- Drop his... Names. Great book. Yes. Yes. Um, but his description of Elizabeth Taylor trying him on as a possible beau- is like so beautiful and made me feel more sympathy for her than anything else I have experienced. It was a little creepy though. <laughs> I need to read this. Yes. It, this is also a good point just to bring up that I think Elizabeth Taylor ultimately is the greatest star. I feel like she's the rare case no. of somebody where the more research you do about her, the only the more you like her. Like, yeah. she, I mean, it's not just the philanthropy, it's the the way she took roles, like it also being people ascribe uh, her stardom to just being glamorous. But no, if you watch like Butterfield eight, which is a like basically a derided Oscar winning performance, it is a funny performance. This is yeah. somebody who like was really handy with a one liner and like you, you, you wanted to feel like trash in her presence. Like there's just something about her that was so 
rad. It's the word for her is rad. She's incredible. And it, it, the interesting thing about her is even though she had, you know, a tumultuous personal life, nobody who was in her personal life ever had a negative thing to say about her, which I think is very telling. Mm-hmm. I think she was like just a person who, yes, she was high drama, but ultimately just so good. And yes, she is my favorite celebrity. So obviously I'm going to cape for her, but like, I, I love her. That was a lovely way to wrap that up. We are going to move on to the rest of our show now. If you have any celebrity couples that we didn't bring up, though I think we named all of them. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's none left. Definitely hit us. We'll be right back with Valerie Bertinelli. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our fabulous guest today has been acting since she was 15 years old. And you better believe I remember her first line on One Day at a Time, which was, Mom, I made the team. I made the team. So I've I've done my homework. Uh, (laughs) She got her start on that show. She won two Golden Globes for her role as Barbara Cooper. She'd go on to get two Emmys since she's now like a a cooking superstar. She has a SAG Award nomination, a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She was also on Hot in Cleveland, if you love legends being on television shows together. And now she has a new book out enough already. Please welcome the just awesome Valerie Bertinelli. Thanks, guys. So nice to be here. This book is, we were just discussing it before you came on, um, like most of your writing, and in fact, like a lot of your hosting, super vulnerable. And I'm wondering, is it a challenge for you to even be vulnerable anymore at this point? I almost expect you just to be able to put it all out in the line when you talk about your life. Can I swear on this thing? You can. You know what? At this age, I don't give a fuck anymore. I really don't. <laughs> I, I, I finally got to a point. I wish I'd felt this way when I was in my 20s, when I was so nervous about making an impression on everybody and, and making sure everybody liked me. And I just don't, I don't care anymore. I mean, of course, I still want people to like me I, because I, I want them to like me because I'm kind to them. 
and because I've given them respect, but not because of the way I look or whatever numbers on the scale or, yeah, I don't, I don't care so much anymore. And I think vulnerability, like Brene Brown says, is a, um, there's a lot of strength and power in vulnerability when you just sit with that truth of who you really are, not what the negative back talk in your head says you are, but um, who you really are, like who you're here to be, who you're here to uh, grow up in this world on this rock that um, we're only here temporarily. And I, but I do believe that we're around forever because energy is forever. So I think um, if I want my life to be better in the afterlife, I want to be nice now. <laughs> I'm very, I'm, it's selfish is really basically what it is. I'm being selfishly nice to people so that I don't have to tell. <laughs> I think it's working. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it's interesting that you mentioned Brene Brown because reading this book, I was actually reminded of some writing by Brene Brown and Glenn and Doyle. And I was, you know, you. there's, I think there's been this wonderful sort of wave of literature by women talking about um, this kind of, liberation, I guess. And you mentioned that, you know, you've, you've in the book, and as well as now you talked about how you've always been kind of a pleaser, and you've wanted people to like you and you've Mm -hmm. learned to let go of that. And I was wondering, do you feel like that comes from being a young performer, this idea that you have to deliver? No, I think, I think it started earlier. I think it started because when my mom was pregnant with me, my older brother um, died. And, um, very quickly, he drank some poison out of a Coke bottle in a, in a barn and they couldn't get him to the hospital in time. It was way out in the boonies. And so the entire time my mom was pregnant with me, she was grieving. I don't know how, I mean, I remember holding Wolfie when he was 19 months old or 17 months old and standing and and looking at Mark's grave for the very first time, my older brother, who I never met and holding Wolfie and saying, this is the same age that Mark how did my mother survive? How do you then take care of your children? That um, So I think subconsciously, I just knew that I needed to be a people pleaser, make sure everybody was okay, because I didn't want to make any waves. I, I There was a lot of sadness in this house already. I wasn't going to add to that. And my mom always said I was such a good kid. I slept perfectly. You know, I never did anything wrong. And I waited to my twenties to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, I think so. It started that much earlier about, um, the people pleasing. And then it became, you know, I would watch my dad not love my mom as much when she would gain weight. I, I had an elementary school teacher point at my belly and go, you're going to, you're going to want to keep an eye on that. And I mean, I was like yeah. 11, 12, who thinks about their body at that age? So I mean, I think I'm getting more angry now at 61 <laughs> going, you mother how could you do this to a young mind and make me so aware of my body that I didn't need to be aware of? Well, so I'm, I'm really pissed off now. <laughs> when you became famous, we did so much less to protect young performers. Like mm. we felt like America felt entire liberty to just comment on women's bodies in whatever way they felt. And like how and now they have a bigger platform to do it. <laughs> like like but you you've managed to like survive and find places for yourself to speak and be vulnerable and to like continue to make a bit like a living in this business and I'm just wondering like while so many people who like went through that same experience as young performers in the 70s and 80s as you like things got really rough for them and I was just wondering like 
like what skills did you pick up? What did you figure out along the way that allowed you to survive and not let that stuff crush you? I think that's where I can give my parents a lot of credit and where they treated what I did um, as my after school activity, mm-hmm. uh, not any more important than what my brothers did. All of their football games, everything, we were always there. Um, and uh, my thing didn't take precedence over theirs. So I wasn't doing anything any more special than anyone else. I just, it was just a little bit more big and more people knew who I was. Um, my brothers might have something different to say about that because they said I was spoiled rotten, but I was also the only girl. So um, I think, I think that old, that old thing, like from the very young age is I wanted to make sure people liked me and I didn't want to do anything to make them not like me. So when I actually did start experimenting with drugs, I was so nervous about people finding out, not even my parents as much as what the people who already knew me would think of me if they knew that uh, Mac and I were doing drugs together. Now, to talk about that era of your life, we on this uh, episode of our podcast, we're actually talking about just our favorite celebrity couples and why we care about people once they couple up and the what changes in our brain when we associate one name with another name. And that's fascinating. In your in your book, I mean, you write so beautifully about who uh, Ed, as you call him, Van Halen was, as in it immediately changed my perception of him. I assumed he was, you know, a, a rowdy rock god, and you really are immediately like, no, this is a very cerebral um, person who's kind of confused by the mania that was built up around him. And I was mm-hmm. wondering, how did you feel people's perception of you changed from when you were just, you know, Barbara Cooper on one day at a time to now wife of, you know, the, the Mozart of rock and roll. Did you feel that people looked at you differently? I don't know that we didn't have social media back then. Yeah. So I don't know how people looked at me. I just, um, was trying to keep my life together at a young age. We got married when I was 20. I don't, I don't. And he was 20. He had just turned 26. A couple weeks after our wedding, I turned 21. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't, had no idea how people looked at me. And it was very different back then, too. It wasn't this, you know, constant barrage of people judging, judging and judging and be able to put any opinion that they have about anybody online. I think I'm very lucky that I didn't. I I don't know how, if I would have survived that I had so many people saying things about me. I don't know. Maybe I would have gotten stronger. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't care to find out. <laughs> One of the most uh, uh, lovely Emmy wins in recent years when you were awarded for uh, your cooking show. And the reason is, is because I was just shocked by the emotion of it. I was shocked by how clearly this chapter in your life was thrilling to you. And and maybe you, you were shocked to find yourself in it. Can you talk about just how cooking became, you know, this this second win for you or the second career for you and what it represented? Who knew? Um, something that I've been doing longer than acting. Um, I come from a generation. I mean, my great grandmother was a cook at a summer home in San Remo. And then in the winter, she would go back to Alonzo Torinese, where she would, would sell her gelato in a cart. And that's how she saved enough money to come over to America. Um, my, I, I would watch my grandmother, Noni, um, make capoletti and make gnocchi in my Aunt Adeline's basement kitchen. We never used her real kitchen. We always used, used the basement kitchen. That's, that is the Italian American thing to have the basement kitchen. I grew up the same way. That's where you cook. <laughs> oh, you did? Oh yeah. I know all about the basement kitchen is where it happens. Yeah. The upstairs <laughs> kitchen is for show. 
<laughs> only yeah right i don't even think they made coffee up there <laughs> so did you have like a particular was there a smell that comes back to you when you think of that absolutely like if even now i you know i cook every night but if, when i'm just all i have to do is throw some garlic cloves into the olive oil then it's like i'm at my grandma's house mm. yeah it's, yeah it's, it's that kind simple. of amazing yeah. the sense memory mm-hmm. But I was going to say, I have to try the lasagna recipe from your book because it sounds like there is some mojo in there. There is some mojo. <laughs> and I think it, I always make the sauce a little bit longer. I, I started earlier than I really talk about in the recipe. So I think the, the longer you can let that sauce sit there and just simmer on the stove all day. There's a reason they yeah. call it Sunday sauce. You just start in the morning and just let it until you guys start, until we start eating around four and there's big jugs gallon jugs of wine on the table and even the kids would have a little bit of you know a sipper and a juice glass so um yeah it's a it's a good recipe my my mom I don't remember did I put the recipe my mom I put my actual mom's recipe in there I think. you put the ricotta recipe okay yes so I also have my bechamel recipe which I love yeah because <laughs> my mom would, and I would fight about it all the time but you know, she, she's an English Irish woman <laughs> who learned how to cook Italian. So they, you know, would leave her alone because they were horrible to her when she first married my dad. But I guess, I mean, they were worried about him because my mom was 17 and pregnant when she got married. So <laughs> I guess she did that back then. Or maybe not. I know people did that. Yeah. And you still do it. <laughs> they still yeah. do it today. Yeah. I have a question. Like, Hot in Cleveland was such an an amazing moment because multicam sitcoms are sort of this art form that we're like we've lost touch with. We don't know how to do it right anymore. And seeing these people mm. who like truly understood like this genre so well, like get to write and perform it and kill it was like so beautiful. And I just I wanted to ask you as somebody who spent so much of your life doing it. What have we lost touch with? What have we forgotten about multicam comedy? That it starts on the page. Mm -hmm. It can't be funny unless it's written funny. No matter how good of an actor you are. And that's where Suzanne Martin is absolutely brilliant. I'm actually shooting a pilot for her in about a month um, called Hungry, Mm -hmm. which I'm super excited about. I play Demi Lovato's mother. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it is about what I talk about in the book. It's It's... Uh, food issues, food culture, diet culture, how we talk to ourselves and why we talk to ourselves so terribly just if we don't like the number on the scale. And Suzanne does it so beautifully with the comedy, the smart, the the, funny. Um, So it has to start on the page. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who you are. If the line's not there, you can't make it funny. I mean, Betty could. (laughs) Betty could kind of do anything. Her line readings were just, just off enough that only they made them hers. Hers uh-huh. for sure, but yeah, it has to start on the page as Diablo does. <laughs> Have you s- cycled through your Betty White memories recently? My God, that must be so overwhelming to go through how many personal moments you've had with somebody who was just bar not maybe the, the greatest TV performer, like maybe number one. I I'm right. I don't even think it's arguably. <laughs> I think she was for sure. She was at, definitely out there the longest. Um, yeah, I think about her a lot. Uh, Lately, I, I even when she was still here with us, I would send her videos of me and my cats, and you know, because she just loved seeing. I, I knew that if she was going to watch my video, I'd have to have a cat or a dog in it <laughs> because she really what she meant it when she said animals are so much better than humans. But yeah, I just the thing that sits with me the most with Betty is beyond her incredible talent and gift and the way she was able to hone her gift 
is just what a kind human being she was. She treated every single person that went up to her with respect and kindness. And she, she did it without, like, it didn't bother. She just, you know, some days you can be in a bad mood and somebody comes up to you and you're like, okay, I have to give a good impression because I don't want them to walk away, you know, thinking that I finally met this person and they're rude. But she just did it because she just was so grateful to be there, Mm -hmm. just to be doing what she was doing and have people like it and love it. She was just the picture, the embodiment of gratitude. And I learned a lot through that. I watched a video of her talking about when she met Alan Ludden, you know, the love of her life. And it took her some convincing to say yes to his constant marriage proposals. And what ultimately did it was that he had two poodle puppies. I mean, the the the, 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 lay, the, the like the must in her life of there's got to be dogs or yes. something is so like yes. both funny dogs, and cute. Cats. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But she also she did say that she had some regrets that she wished she hadn't wasted that whole year that she could have been with him. Right. And uh, so. I I believe that regrets are okay. It's okay to have a regret and and to help it change your life as opposed to, I mean, there are people that can live that way that can say, you know, I have no regrets. It's made me who I am. And I'm like really kind of jealous of that because I would like to be who I am, but learn from the regrets that I have. And I still have regrets that I won't be able to change, but that's just life. Do you have any particular regrets that sits kind of highest in your mind? Ones that like are you think about often? Yeah, moving faster when um, I know something's not working and 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 letting it go. I'm I'm a procrastinator. I mean, um, my marriage has been falling apart for a good five years, and um, it wasn't until just recently I finally filed for separation because I was hopeful. Yeah. I can still make this work. I can make anything work. I'm strong. I can do this. And sometimes you just have to say. We're just, yeah, we got to let it go. Mm-hmm. We just have to let it go. Um, I wish I had spent more time with Ed when he was sitting in that big house all alone um, in the last year of his life. I just, I didn't go over because of COVID. And I got so angry that I couldn't go over because of COVID. I, I regret not just, you know, masking up and gloving up and still going over there and hanging out, at least in the backyard, because he was so lonely. Um, and then after a certain time, it was just like, I'm just... I'm going to the hospital. I don't care. Um, yeah. Regrets about not being mature enough to deal with Ed's illness and um, his, you know, the drugs and the alcohol. And, and as opposed to focusing on the drugs and the alcohol, focus on the pain that he's going through that makes him reach for drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. As a, as opposed to just being selfish and going, well, if you loved me, you would give all that up. I mean, that's not true. You, you can't do anything for someone else. Okay. And I wish that I'd been able to help him get more tools to use besides drugs and alcohol. But he was able to do it near the end. Um, and I, I'm grateful for that because he was able to really connect with all the people that he loved and all the regrets that he had throughout his life he was able to make up for. And I have to ask uh, about one day at a time very quickly. Do you just have a single favorite memory from that time? Because literally, when I think about that show, every single character on that show could have been their own show. I was I was so into like 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 the, the coruscating humanity of these people. Like you and Mackenzie Phillips as characters, like had nothing in common, and I never doubted you were sisters. You know, like you were your character was never quite I exasperated like Bonnie Franklin's, but I believed you were her daughter. You know, so there, mm-hmm. there's just something about people Even being. The three of us look nothing alike. Yeah, right. Exactly. So do you have like a 
particular crystallized memory from that time that you cherish? Not just one, so many. Um, after the first season, Bonnie invited me to New York to go stay at her apartment for a couple of days. And I just loved that. I, she was like a second mother to me. Um, all the time I spent with Mac and um, how we developed our friendship, all the sleepovers that we had. Um, and still to this day, we were just texting um, yesterday and um, you know, just telling each other how much we love each other again. I think what I have learned through all of this, through these last couple of years on all of the grief that um, I've walked through is that treat everybody you meet as if you're never gonna see them again and let them know how you feel. And it may be corny and I might be saying I love you to so many people, <laughs> but at least they know. No, I, I think you're right. I don't think that's something you ever regret. You know, it's being too effusive with with love. Although, you know, it's funny. I I was very effusive with Matt. Um, she had uh, texted me and said, oh, I just saw your People magazine and I just bought it and I can't wait to read your book and um, congratulations and all those lovely things. And I just wrote her this long text. I said, I don't think you'll ever really know what you have meant to me in my life. She was my first sister, real sister. I only had, I grew up with brothers. Um, we've been through hell and back, the two of us. And um, I love her deeply, deeply. And I just wanted to let her know. And before I read her answer, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm such a like, oh, that's just too, you know, sappy, too sugary, stop bell. And I, I did, it started to like that, that feeling start to well over me. Like you said too much, which I tend to do. And um, when she wrote me back, it was like, okay, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. Why does sincerity matter more in a cooking show host than an actor? Like I never <laughs> thought about it until this moment, but like, I truly do not tr like the, the cooking show hosts that I trust to guide me correctly through a recipe are the ones where I'm like, I know that bitch. Like <laughs> she, she's not, I, I think it is like, you know, you're not getting to taste the food. You need somebody you trust. So it really is <laughs> like, I, I was very impressed. Is that that old adage? Never trust a skinny chef. Yes, yes. <laughs> Although I do trust Giada. She is uh, impeccable. So um, she's just got a different metabolism. What are you going to do? You know, she can still cook her ass off. Valerie, thank you so much for being here. My God. I mean, just as I was saying before you got here, just one of the great celebs, period. And you're, uh, oh, yeah. you're, you're I, I, I'm so thankful for your like, just uh, uh, what's the radical vulnerability? Is that the phrase? I don't know the phrases anymore, but, but you great, certainly oh, have I it. I like that. That's right. That, I think that's what Brene has, has that's said. That's it. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. We will be right back after this. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Well, like most things you once loved, Scream is back, and it's got much of its original cast back in the roles that made them horror icons. But, and we'll talk about Scream for a second, 
but I wanted to get into what makes a horror protagonist, somebody we care about movie after movie, uh, even within one movie. And I guess we'll just start with Brooke since, you know, she's fucking written one overachieving. What do you love in a horror protagonist in particular? I think I, along with many horror fans, am looking typically for a resourceful female. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know that there have been, you know, books and academic papers written on the subject of, you know, the final girl and what what that means. Uh, and I don't I don't specifically know why we like just like a slightly brainy blue stocking heroine in these movies. But like that's it's still what I'm drawn to after all these years, probably because I grew up watching Nightmare on Elm Street, my favorite franchise. And, you know, Nancy was it for me. She was just like. I can relate. Although looking back, it was kind of problematic that they were always, you know, murdering like the sexy girls. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, people were constantly, you know, punished in creative ways for having sex in 80s horror movies. But yeah, I mean, I, I've i I've only written one horror movie, but I was like, I, I need this. I, I need this girl to be like a little bit neurotic and a little bit relatable so what these qualities that you're talking about remind me of why i found the new scream somewhat lacking not that it wasn't entertaining from start to finish the jump scares are there plenty of funny jokes which is crucial to scream but to me the movie is confused about what makes scream um what it is it it's a movie that thinks the meta horror is what we want to hear about and all the materials all about the meta horror when really the greatest thing about scream is Sydney mm-hmm. who is who not only is resourceful as you say but her reaction to the world of fandom and her reaction to the world of you know self-impressed horror types is just as important as those horror types like we needed the eye roll about mm-hmm. knowing all the rules of horror And while she is in the movie, and in my opinion, gives a great performance. I love her in the movie. It tries to make it about all these other people who just don't have the same gravitas and the same sense of, in my opinion, very well-acted trauma. Sydney has become a very real character over the years to me. But, um, Guy, what do you like in horror movies? Or do you even care about horror movies? I don't like horror movies. Okay. I I don't like being scared. I find them, uh, like, uncomfortable. I like reading the Wikipedia entry for a horror film. (laughs) So I can say, oh, that is what happened in Hereditary. And then just move along. Um, But I loved Scream because it was sort of, like... I mean, the thing is, is like I wasn't watching them enough and I wasn't aware enough to be looking at the gender dynamics of like the classic Halloween nightmare in Elm Street, that sort of thing. But when it was all laid out for me and spelled out for me, like that moment when she inserts her finger into his wound and penetrates him, I was like, yes, this is like everything I've been looking for. And it's why like Jennifer's body like giving you like like the horror girl but also making the horror a woman and sort of like you know like just meditating like making it nothing but a meditation on gender i like horror films that are nothing but a meditation on gender like midsummer was like brightly lit and had lots of pretty colors and was a meditation on gender and i'm fine with it um but it like i feel like you know, my niece is 20 and she is so in love with all of those like classic horror films. And I just watched a documentary about Halloween and sort of like, you know, understanding like, guy, this is an iconic Jamie Lee Curtis performance that you haven't exposed yourself to. What are you doing? It does make me think I these are things I need to explore. Well, there's something about Jamie Lee Curtis in general that 
has so much pull on those in, in that movie. I mean, there's a lot, lots of stuff technically about the first Halloween that's a lot of fun, but in, in particular about her, she's a character who kind of gives you nothing until the big horror moments. Like she's very reserved. Like there, there's a um, resigned, I don't know about cynical quality, but like hardened quality, whereas her friends are more openly like catty or like bitchy mm. or whatever. And she seems to have like a reservoir of depth. Uh, lingering that we're hoping to that we hope to explore by the end of the movie. Now, when I think of Halloween, I think of I'm assuming it's done with ADR is why it sounds so strange. But when Jamie Lee Curtis says the keys and she's trying to get into a room, it's such a shocking moment. It sounds like like a Frank Oz voice has lurched into the picture or something. Anyway, but um, Brooke, when Scream came along, was it agree? I mean, like. Were you thrilled that there was an irony laden horror franchise or did you find it too self-aware or what did you think of it? No, I was really excited because first of all, I was already a Wes Craven super fan, obviously. So I just wanted to see whatever, whatever he had to present. Um, And it was just like, um, you you have to understand this was uh, the, this was the sort of the moment of the Drew Barrymore Renaissance Mm. where so it was just even just seeing her on the poster you were like this is going to be an event and then to have her spoiler alert killed (laughs) off instantly uh was then you were like oh my god this movie is going to break this movie is breaking all the rules and also like the original scream is really scary totally i think it's the scariest movie i've ever seen yeah it, it just totally delivers on every level so yeah i was thrilled i have to say some of the meta commentary is going a little bit too far for me now I can understand why the writers uh, are, you know, tempted by it. I, I certainly find myself tempted by it as well when I write these days because it's kind of hard not to get caught up in a meta vortex in this bizarre, like, postmodern world that we live in. But, I mean, honestly, I think nothing can replace storytelling. Like, in 1996, you know? we had just discovered the technology. Like at that point in time, you were doing something so bold to point out the the dynamics of things. But and it is like, yes, now twenty years later, like you need to stop reminding people that they are watching a story that was written because, <laughs> like, you know, the magic is letting yourself into it. Exactly, and I, I like I said, I understand why in that moment, you know, like. I remember when, like, be- this is not a horror movie, but I remember when Being John Malkovich came out. Everybody's yeah. minds were, like, blown. And, like, now I think if you did tried something similar, it'd be kind of like, oh, okay. Like, we've just, we've, we've, we've played enough in that sort of meta world that I think it's maybe not quite as exciting as it used to be. I showed yeah. Being John Malkovich to my 20-year-old niece and sort of assumed that it would not hit her as hard as it did. And she was dazzled by it. I mean, the oh, thing really? is— I'm wrong. Well, it's also, but the thing is, is like, but also being John Malkovich is just so funny that like, it, it's yeah. not, it's not resting on the meta. It's, you know, it's resting on good, solid jokes alongside the meta. No, people <laughs> need to understand that there was a femme fatale era for Catherine Keener. People, we, we've lost this to time. Yes. Just the same way you said that people have lost the idea that, um, Drew Barrymore ever went away when in fact she had this huge renaissance because I'm thinking of the mid 90s that she did like boys on the side and like home fries and things like that right yeah yeah and then she had that weird move that weird tv show which I think I've brought up recently on this podcast 2000 Malibu Road 
where it was a, uh, a, a nighttime soap where somebody gets struck by lightning. But just to let you know, Drew Barrymore once upon a time had to take shows like 2000 Malibu Road. So you better be grateful for the Drew Barrymore you got. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, we, she had, she had kind of slipped away from us. She was doing Poison Ivy, you know, it was like, Poison and Ivy. then suddenly we had Drew Barrymore back on the, you know, the big screen and it was actually really exciting because she belongs to all of us. <laughs> I mean, the, the magic of like low, like low budget horror films truly was that sense that you did not know what would come at you like as a child watching broadcast television when some sort of like edited for television david cronenberg would just sort of like bounce out at you and you were like what the fuck am i watching like i i think part of what made me not like horror was the power of that genre and the power that like it is going to move outside of the boundaries of what you have been taught is acceptable in narrative media (laughs) Also, I I have like a a weird um, lack of affinity for remembering directors. It's just not something. It's not like actors to me where I remember everything about them. When I watch a David Cronenberg movie, I am literally saying out loud to the screen, "What is wrong with him?" I'm thinking. <laughs> I, I I saw fucking uh, Dead Ringers for the first time not so long ago, which is where Jeremy Irons plays the twin gynecologist and Genevieve <laughs> Bujold plays the horniest woman who has ever lived, and the body horror of it, which is by the way a genre I don't know that much about. Period. It's just like. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with myself. Do people just sit in a theater and watch this stuff? Brooke, you're like, a, I feel like you're very sympathetic to body horror. I mean, I am. I enjoy it. And yeah, I guess you really are. You do just sit there and watch it. Um, but I mean, we've all asked ourselves that about Cronenberg. I mean, I remember going to see Crash in the theater and just sitting there being like, what? Like, this is how I'm spending my afternoon. <laughs> hate, he's done some wild stuff I hate that people associate Crash with a movie about like uh, you know Los Angeles automobiles and not like sexualizing Holly Hunter in a leg brace yeah. <laughs> exactly that's my Crash that's our Crash yeah now Guy you brought up uh, horror movies that are feminist meditations do you have opinions on Rosemary's Baby which I feel like is the the crowning example of a protagonist I am caring about because she has both cynicism to start in fact she's kind of this like proto yuppie at the beginning of the movie and then as it goes on it becomes a uh, a movie about is she having her uh, feminine paranoias or are they real you know it's like invalidating her whole existence via this strange curse i mean like speaking of directors what a terrible man uh, but <laughs> w- like what a great movie like you yeah. know r- like Ruth Gordon giving you like I love when people manage to find insidious in places where you wouldn't expect them and like pushy next door na- like like pushy next door neighbor becoming the person who unmakes your life is so delightful and, and there's also those weird like those like tonal horrors of the late 60s where nothing was crashing through a door but you were just getting like vaguely upset um i like them a lot more than i love things that crash through doors (laughs) (laughs) you're rosemary's baby queen aren't you brooke oh yeah i absolutely love it i mean i love the atmosphere of horror as well i'm not a big jump scare person um you know and rosemary's baby i mean it has uh, some of the the scene where she's in the phone booth on the street and she's just panicking and you don't know if Dr. Saperstein is outside the phone. I mean, it's like, it's, that movie is tense. Would you guys like to hear my impression of um, 
Mia Farrow yes. in uh, Rosemary's Baby. Thank you. Yes. Mm. An undertaste. A chalky undertaste. <laughs> um, I've never been able to understand Mia Farrow's accent. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> but, well, you know, my favorite thing about Rosemary's Baby is the devil fucking with people via word games. He's just fully Will Shorts uh, <laughs> at, no, at the, the helm. The moral of Rosemary's Baby is never marry an aspiring actor. He will destroy your life in some way. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was actually great. But the commentary on how like all of it was just so he could get an acting role. Yes. Like he was willing to literally like kill a man like blind a man and sacrifice like his like it's it was a lot for like whatever it was it was like a it, it didn't even sound that great a broadway supporting role you know yeah. like eight like, shows a week you want that life come on man yeah it's like the equivalent of like a, a cw dad role he yeah. Got. yeah yeah <laughs> No shade to that. Um, I was going to also say about atmosphere in movies. Something that I think goes underrated about the original Halloween is how much of it takes place in the middle of a boring suburban day. Like how much like Michael Myers is just walking around outside and it's sunny. And, you know, it's like it gets into the eeriness of just living in a place where there's not much going on. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't walk past, like, anytime you're on a sidewalk and there's, like, hedges obscuring what's ahead? Like, who doesn't think of Michael Myers? Is it yeah, just, right. it, I mean, I don't know. Or clotheslines. I mean, yeah, daytime horror is the best. I mean, as a rural American, I have to point to the insidiousness. Like, Children of the Corn is a hell of a film. Making very Christian people scary. It's also doing a lot of daytime work. Uh, I, like... I realize that it is a bad film, but there's like something so f like the badness makes it scarier, as I was saying with the Cronenberg, because you just don't know what the fuck you're watching. Wow, that's so true. But if if I can't trust that reasonable adults are at the helm, I yes. don't know what's going to fucking happen. <laughs> uh, anyway, I am deeply obsessed with. Sydney Prescott and I, I don't know what I want next for her obviously we've had five chapters already but um, also I want to say another starring feature of Scream that was not explored is that her relationship with Gail Weathers which is like the surprise friendship that like evolves after the first and second movie they didn't add a chapter to it and I feel like that friendship is so unusual in movies and that Gail is an asshole Mm -hmm. And, you know, a kind of Faye Dunaway in network type person. And Sydney is a normal, um, bothered, perturbed um, trauma survivor. And for some reason, they like each other. It's weirdly the um, one of the one of the great Bechtel wins. I find, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's a realistic dynamic because I play the asshole to a lot of my traumatized friends. And I think that they value having me in their lives as the Gail Weathers. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're the Gale Weather man? I mean, you've got the jokes. I'll say that. <laughs> I got the bangs. That's, <laughs> I know, that's you dusty. do have teal bangs at the moment, but not. You don't have the Scream Three bangs, which look like you know, a, which look like a spider ring that you pick up at Dave and Buster's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so if you have favorite uh, horror protagonists, throw them at me. What you love about them, what you don't love about them. We'll be right back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's keep it. And we're back with the sauciest part of the episode. It's Keep It. 
the namesake part of the episode. Why don't we start with uh, uh, our half EGOT guest today? I think we should always, whoever has the most awards should go first in this section every time. I don't know why we haven't done that before. Yes. But uh, uh, Brooke, yes. what do you saying keep it to this week? Um, so I follow a lot of Disney adults on TikTok. And <laughs> why? I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not at liberty to say, um, you know, I might, I might be like Disney adult adjacent a little bit. And, uh, apparently this week people were lining up for like six, seven hours a day at Epcot center to buy these limited edition popcorn buckets. And there was, there's something about a, a fucking popcorn bucket being like this, this coveted item that people are lined up for seven hours to buy that just kind of repulsed me. So I'm going to say, <laughs> keep it to the fucking popcorn bucket at Epcot center. What is, is that on too the bucket? Specific? It's the bucket is the little dragon. That's the mascot of Epcot center. His <laughs> name is figment. Wow. Um, well, coll- being a collector, that is a dog's life because you will get on a plane to just about anywhere to like, but if, you know, I, complete that Pez dispenser collection. That's the part that killed me is like, you're going to go all the way to Orlando. Some of these people have their kids with them. They're at Disney World and you're going to wait in line all day for a popcorn bucket. Are you familiar with the defunct land videos on YouTube? Of course. Absolutely. Uh- I mean, I am not. What is this? Lewis, it's this guy who made videos about things that no longer exist, at, like in Disney, like, but also uh, other amusement parks. He has a long one about the Black Cauldron, basically like Disney of yore. But the most impressive thing is there is a feature length documentary that he made about FastPass that includes wow. what? That includes a, a simulation he built, a, like, he built a simulation of an amusement park to figure out whether no fast pass fast pass or the wristband system they had at disney world created the most efficient system for all people at a park like it it truly is hypnotic work like it is nerd like at home nerdery at its best wow i'm deeply impressed and of course also worried um Now, I should say this, Diablo, you are a devoted um, amusement park fan, namely yes. a roller coaster fan. Uh, but I don't associate you with Disney recently. I mean, I guess you would have to be if you're into I, that sort yeah, of park Yeah, I do. Thing. Unfortunately, as an amusement park enthusiast, I do I do fuck with Disney a little. I'm not like, but, you know, I mean, there's people who are really hardcore. I enjoy going to Disneyland a few times a year. And I, you know, sometimes I will consume Disney related content on social media, but yeah, I, I can't, um, some of those people go really deep. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you not have a period in your life where you watched the Disney's Pocahontas like a hundred times? I I've seen Pocahontas a lot. Yeah. That was a comfort movie for me for a while. And why is that? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think I was like, uh, Maybe having some kind of psychotic break at the time. <laughs> the same reason. I I've mean, seen, I love. Same reason I've seen Frank Oz's Little Shop of Horrors ten thousand times. Oh, so yeah. good. That, that really so came good, back right? into vogue, though. I think you won out with that one. That's one of those movies like Clue, where like do people appreciate it? It, it, now? it turned out. Ev- it feels like it turned out everybody watched it a hundred times. Okay. like at random. And also like Howard Ashman doing what Howard Ashman wanted to do. I mean, like. That we have only recently been able to explore the works of Howard Ashman as like 
core queer canon um, makes me very happy. Like, Lewis, did you watch the Disney Plus documentary about Howard Ashman? No, and I know he's like the gay king of Disney, and I probably should have seen it. And he's yes. written Oscar-winning songs, etc. But, but anyway, Guy... You're up. What are you saying keep it to this week? I am not going to do the thing that I was going to keep it about. In, okay. Like, in this moment, I feel the thing I am most moved to say keep it to is the episode from two to four years ago of Blackish where they used the Disney VIP tour service. Um, like, <laughs> capitalism has run amok in America to a point that is disgusting. The world that I was raised in doesn't exist anymore, and the extent to which children are, are forced to look in the face, the fact that their opportunities are directly dependent upon the income of their parents horrifies me. And the fact that, that like Disney, ABC, and Blackish conspired to show children across America the thing that their parents can't afford that would make their trip to Disneyland so much better like I, I was horrified to watch it. I twice with the Mindy Project got to experience Disneyland VIP tours. They are fucking amazing. Like it is, like it, it, it. But it is something we should feel dirty about. Like I looked a seven-year-old in the face as they waited in line with their parents for to get on like the Peter Pan ride or something like that. Like one of the little storybook rides in Fantasyland. While I and a bunch of like Harvard Lampoon alumni cut the line. It is not okay and is what is wrong with America. I believe in the Disneyland of my childhood where everyone played a premium to enter, but then everyone was equal when they came in. Like if we are going to save America's democracy, a first step has to be ending the Disney VIP tour system. I agree with you completely, by the way. Yeah. You, you've taught me a lot right now. Sorry, my head's on backwards after all of and that. And they got rid of the fast pass system, which was democratic and available to yes. everybody. And now they have this weird magic key thing that you have to pay extra for. And it's, yeah, it's, I think no, it's the, unfair. The magic key thing, which was like making your ability to get on rides dependent upon whether you got like booked their hotels and stuff like that, was corporate synergy at its most nefarious. Yeah. Will I take advantage of it? Absolutely. Do I worry for our nation? Yes. Guy, if you want to do a Disney Parks podcast with me, I would be like so <laughs> down because I get in the sense that this might be in your wheelhouse. No, it's like it's just the defunct land videos making me care about it over the course of the last three weeks. I've already segued to a woman named Sonia's Shabbat prep videos and this lady who was on Ladies of London who is, oh, she's from Chicago. She's a Chicago lady who married a Viscount who now... <laughs> does YouTube videos about her stately home. So I've <laughs> moved on and we'll probably doing a, be doing a podcast about one of them. Okay. Wow, that, sound, that sounded very Emily in Paris adjacent. Thank you for that. Um, I've decided to make my keep it also Disney related, which is every time I see a list of the quote unquote greatest voiceover performances of all time, namely in animated movies, Robin Williams is always at the top. And I just want to say that that is fucking bullshit because... The, first of all, my choice for the greatest VO performance of all time is Betty Lou Gerson. Do you know what role I'm talking about, either of you? No. Cruella DeVille in the original oh. 101 Dalmatians. Okay. Because, first of all, that's a radio drama voice, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> if, you, if George Sanders is Shere Khan in The Jungle Book, sort of that same kind of timbre, that smokiness. Um, and it's just a hilarious performance, a scary performance, and, of course, an incredibly glamorous performance inspired by movie, star, star, movie stars of yore like Tallulah Bankhead. But 
Guys, Robin Williams just basically improv into a mic and then they turned it into animation. That is not playing by the rules. His like, his like Johnny Carson impression or whatever he does in the middle of the movie, that wasn't in the original script. I don't support like, like you doing whatever you want and then people turning it into animation is not the same thing as I'm reading the script, I'm adding nothing, I'm doing the same take 500 times in a row. That's what's important. So I feel that Robin Williams, while giving an iconoclastic and memorable performance, is disqualified from all future versions of this list. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but it's irrelevant because I'm correct. I mean, stunned and shocked that Pat Carroll is not your favorite uh, oh. voiceover like performance as Ursula. Like, well, l- let me just say something. I have never seen The Little Mermaid. That's ridiculous. What? How weird That's is crazy. that? crazy. I, also, also, it, I would have thought your favorite was Peggy Lee and Lady in the Tramp. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, I mean, her songs, shall we say, have not aged well. But <laughs> um, no, but Peggy Lee does have a, a beautiful speaking voice. And in fact, that same year she was nominated or the, the year after. Sorry. Nope. That year she was nominated for an Oscar for P. P Kelly's Blues. You ever seen that guy? No. Oh, anyway. But Peggy Lee was that bitch in exactly that year. Are you a Lady in the Tramp fan, Brooke? Yeah, I like Lady in the Tram. It's it's a lovely movie. I was wondering if I haven't seen it in probably twenty years. If it was secretly, you know, boring, like low on plot. No, or it's like one of the best dog foreplay movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Which I will be ranking in a future yeah. episode. <laughs> Guy, who's your favorite VO performance ever? Pat Carroll, like Ursula. Oh, yeah. I if we're making movies about Disney villains and their backstory, I want a movie about Ursula and King Triton competing for the love of the lady who ended up becoming Ariel's mom, and like her loving Ursula more, but going with Triton because it was status and everything like that, and like Ursula's lesbian rage fomenting into you know the movie that we ended up saying. Burke, do you have a, an answer to this question too? Of my favorite. Um, you know, I'm going to go with Mandy Moore Entangled because it was like the Yacht Rock of Disney princess performances. <laughs> like, it was like very, it was extremely low key and um, an interesting choice for Disney, an interesting direction. And uh, yeah, just very, that, that, that soundtrack is just, uh, it's, it's chill. <laughs> I'm now thinking about the film How to Deal. And, yeah. and the like kind of like rock and roll posturing she did on the cover of it. But while still remaining, you're right, yacht rock relatable all the time. Yeah, Mandy is uh, just like, she's not, she's not asking too much of the listener. It's just, she's just going <laughs> to, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan. Well, I think we've covered all the topics that anybody could reasonably want to cover today. Thank you, uh, first of all, Guy, for being here these past three weeks. Uh, You've done a lot of heavy lifting, and you've stepped up to the plate, and I so thank you. It was lovely to be here. And Brooke, uh, guys, if you're ever at a a diner in West Hollywood and you see two people somewhat angrily ranking the cast members of the real world Seattle, that's us. (laughs) (laughs) Drop by our table. Irene on top, I certainly hope. Yeah. Obviously. Oh no. If, <laughs> no. If, if you're talking about real world cast members, you always have to rank at the top the people who were not replicated in any other season. Yeah. Irene. Woof. I mean, that energy was not trustworthy. <laughs> and now I want to have like an Irene and Steven discussion, and I know we don't have time, but like. Yeah. Right. You, well, you'll have to come back. That's yeah. when we'll start that. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Hey. 
Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin, and the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's gonna be great.